0: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world, so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also, understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager Niels Kostrup Larsen.
1: Welcome back to another edition of Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on Managed Futures. My name is Niels Kastroblasen. I'm delighted to welcome you to today's conversation with industry leaders and pioneers in Managed Futures brought to you by the world's leading futures exchange, CME Group. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Daniel Crosby, who is the Chief Behavioral Officer at Brinker Capital, as well as the author to a number of highly recommended books, including the book titled The Behavioral investor and the host of the Standard Deviation podcast. First of all, Daniel, welcome and thank you very much for getting up early to join me for an exploration of the fascinating aspects of investing through the eye of behavioral finance.
2: Uh, My pleasure and I've been up for a couple of hours so we're we're good to go. (laughs)
1: Great stuff. Now, before we jump into today's topics, I think it's always useful to frame our conversation with a bit of your own path and how you got to where you are today, and perhaps more so with you, because today I find that there are lots of people that see themselves at least as experts in behavioral finance, but most of them don't really have the academic roots to fit that title. But you do, and you are different in that respect. So, So why don't we just go back and and talk a little bit about how it all came about, so to speak.
2: Sure, it's well, it's interesting. You know, I often I'm very active on social media. And being a psychologist who's putting his ideas out in the world, you, you quickly learn that everyone is an armchair psychologist. And sometimes I wish I were a physicist or something else that, that felt maybe a little bit more unattainable and maybe people wouldn't have quite so many ideas. But yes, I am a, a little bit rare in our industry. I'm a clinical psychologist by education. So my, my PhD is in clinical psychology. I went to school to become a, a therapist. And about uh, 75% of my way through graduate school, I was just kind of burnt out. I enjoyed thinking deeply about why people did the things that they did, but knew that I didn't want to be seeing patients in a medical setting 40 hours a week. And so luckily for me, my my father is a financial advisor. And so my father sort of turned me on to this new field of behavioral economics, Um, you know, not so new, but new to me. And it was just beginning, this is right as Kahneman is you know, winning the Nobel Prize. And so it was sort of been in the news, it had been topical. And so, yeah, I got turned on by virtue of a, a dad who was in the industry and could point me in that direction. And so as soon as I started to learn about behavioral economics and behavioral finance, I knew I was home. Uh, And, you know, long story short, over a a series of adventures and misadventures have worked myself uh, into a place where I get to talk about and think about these things full time.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. It's definitely a different path than most. And I was just wondering, out of curiosity, I mean, do you think that people without your kind of training sort of deep down might miss something in kind of the advice that they provide to people? I mean, is it, you know, is it that different having all the knowledge that you have from from the academic side, I guess.
2: Well, I would say that knowledge is the the least important part of it all. You know, I mean, I'm sure we'll discuss today that knowledge does very little to change human behavior. You know, one of my yeah. favorite examples is that in the early '90s here in the U.S., uh, we started labeling our food. You know, you see how much fat and sodium and calories and all that's in, in your food. And, and since that time, the U.S. population is twice as fat and you know three times as morbidly obese. And so just knowledge by itself does very little. But for me, having spent thousands of hours sitting across from, from people who are having the worst day of their life, you know, training in empathy and training in in connecting with people is is immensely valuable when giving advice. Uh, knowledge is unfortunately not not all that valuable.
1: No, no, that, that's true. I mean, I guess a lot of the people who who do the uh, advice giving, so to speak, uh, in today's world, I mean, they've read other books, you know, modern portfolio theory and and the likes, and and whatever you're given, you know, uh, when you take your degree in in finance but i I just wonder if maybe today they're not really sort of adequately equipped if if you don't understand the kind of the overriding rule book of of investing meaning you know humanity and and how we how we behave i mean so to me at least it seems like it's just an area that should have a much higher place in, you know, in, in our industry, so to speak.
2: Well, I'm I'm absolutely with you. And I think one of the things that you learn as you study trading, as you study financial markets, is that, that human beings are, of course, the, the bottom most turtle, right? They're, they're the fundamental element of, of capital markets. And so I think you're exactly right. And interestingly, the U.S. has been a little slow, I think, to to embrace mm-hmm. this. I think Western Europe far... Uh, exceeded and preceded the U.S. adoption uh, of behavioral finance. And I'm proud to say that we're catching up a little bit. but, But yeah, I think this is a bigger deal in Europe still than it is here. And it's absolutely the most important thing an investor could study.
1: Sure, sure. I want to start in an unusual place, I think, at first glance, Daniel, namely with guinea worms. Because in in my view and and having listened to the things you've done, uh, it ties in perfectly to our conversation today about kind of investing human behavior and what good investing behavior looks like. So I'm sure you know where I'm going with this, so maybe you can uh, (laughs) take the lead on, on this one.
2: I do so. This is a story I started out my my previous book, The Laws of Wealth, with, and it's it's one that tends to stick with people because it's a little bit stomach turning. But uh, there is a good point. I didn't just in- include it to be gross. So I'm from Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia, and Atlanta is you know of course home to Coca Cola and UPS and a couple of other big businesses. But one of the things that we're we're most proud of is that Atlanta is the c- center for epidemiological research in the world. And so I I relate the story of the Carter Center, which is the philanthropic legacy of President Jimmy Carter. It's his philanthropic sort of arm. And what they did was for the first time in human history, they eradicated a disease for which there is still no cure. So it even, it almost sounds nonsensical when you say it, you know, they they eradicated a disease that there's no cure for, it has never happened before. There's no pill, there's no potion that will get rid of guinea worms which at the time were impacting millions and millions of people in in Africa and just totally decimating economies. And basically what the Carter Center did was they trained young people, they trained young uh, students and teachers to go over to Africa to educate people around the two behaviors they needed to do. Basically they needed to, to identify the early signs of Guinea worms and they needed to quarantine because the way that guinea worms spread is they, they make your feet itch. Sorry, we'll get a little gross here. They make your feet itch. And so people would run down to the communal watering hole and submerse their feet in the village water supply to try and get some relief from this itching. And of course, then the worms get into the water supply and the whole thing goes and goes. So they identified two behaviors, identification and quarantine, and they found that if they did these things, they could eradicate the disease. So simply by following two rules, they eradicated this disease that was you know, crippling a number of West African nations. And so the parallel that I draw to investors is if we can just follow a couple of simple rules... Right? If we can just follow a couple of simple rules, we can overcome the behavioral cancers, right? the behavioral errors, which are the plague of so many investors. Uh, because, you know, sad to say, there's no pill coming. There's no potion coming that's going to make us you know, rational or make us make good decisions. So we have to just follow these rules.
1: Absolutely. In a sense, you could say, I mean, as you say, there are a couple of rules that should be followed, but there's obviously also, uh, you know, when you don't, and you could say that, you know, that's kind of the you know, the bad behavior and and I think you cite in some of your work something that you call the the behavioral gap, which you know talks about the underperformance of of people who have bad behavior when it comes to to investing and and it's fascinating to me, you know, to know a little bit more about these sort of behavioral biases and and understand them them better. So just out of curiosity, I mean, tell us about so this massive challenge. we as it, from a sort of like big picture point of view that we as investors have and and how we can kind of overcome the the overall problem of investing and and you know with the bad behavior we we often see.
2: Yeah, so, you know, going kind of 30,000 feet here, I like to say that, you know, God or nature could not have designed a worse investor than than you or I. Like every, <laughs> you know, every single way that we have evolved, we have evolved for for immediacy Uh, We've evolved for certainty, we've evolved for action, uh, and success in financial markets takes dealing with uncertainty, it takes restraint, it takes patience, it takes not listening to your gut. You know, our gut was our original risk tolerance system, sort of our, you know, our gauge of how we ought or ought not to behave. Uh, And, you know, I've made the point, I hope, rather convincingly in my my latest book that listening to your gut is a, a, a profoundly bad idea. So... I think the first thing that we need is just a recognition and awareness of just how ill-equipped we are for this. Because I think a lot of people who have had success in other avenues, right, in other places in life, they go, oh, well, I've been a successful business person, or I'm a successful parent or, you know, whatever it is, They go, I'm, I'm competent, I'm a good, I'm a good person. They, tr- they think that those skills will generalize into the world of investing. And I refer to it as Wall Street bizarro world and you know, in, in the laws of wealth, because the rules of good investing are, are almost 180 degrees of the rules of the rest of the life. So uh, in a very real sense, what got you there in other places in your life won't get you to where you wanna go in the world of investing. So sort of recognition about that and humility around it. And I'll steal, I'll paraphrase Jim O'Shaughnessy from What Works on Wall Street fame, Uh, you know, I'll poorly paraphrase. He says something in What Works on Wall Street to the effect of, you know, the first thing you've gotta do as a behavioral investor is recognize that you are just as susceptible to the same dumb mistakes and crippling behavior as the next person. And so, so many of us read books like mine uh, with an eye to sort of, oh, wow, yeah, that's totally my neighbor or my wife or whoever. We need to use this thing as a mirror and not as a window onto others' behavior. It needs to be a mirror at which we take a look at ourselves and our own behavior.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I also heard him uh, say, uh, you know, something along the lines that, you know, we don't see the world as it is. Uh, We see the world as as we are. And I I think these kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, it's very poignant. Now, of course, we as kind of systematic and and rules-based investors will argue that being a quant is is kind of the best response to overcoming the traps of, of human biases but it also presents other challenges i think because it isn't as sexy as being like a global discretionary or a discretionary global macro investor who can tell stories and make things sound very complex which are some of the things investors really uh, are still looking for because of their biases which they don't even recognize as you say that that they're wrongs, so It's kind of a big ask to say to investors i mean you really need to defy human nature with all of your experience in in this field how do we how do we best do that in a practical sense
2: so you know i think if if you just had to give one piece of advice for becoming Mm -hmm. a behavioral investor it would be to be a quant i mean that's there's there's no other Mm. single thing that you could do that would get you further down the road to good behavior However, I just had Mr. O'Shaughnessy uh, on my podcast, and he, he talked about the great financial crisis. You know, he, he talked about investing as a quantitative manager throughout 07 to 09. And he said the thing he was most proud of over that time was not his performance, but the fact that he never deviated from his, his rules. And he Mm -hmm. said in his conversations with other ostensibly quantitative managers, more than 60% of them, so like two-thirds of the quantitative managers that he talked to, broke their own rules, right? And so, again, human behavior worms its way into to every facet of this. You know, being a quant is a fantastic hedge against bad behavior but we have to do what Jim Simons said you know Jim Simons of RenTech fame said I you know I set the rules and I follow them slavishly Your rules are only as good as your adherence to those rules. So we have to try and make sure that bias doesn't enter into the the creation of those rules. And then more importantly, we have to make sure that bias doesn't cause us to subvert our own rules just when we need them the most.
1: Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, working myself for a firm that now celebrates, you know, 45 years as a systematic rules-based firm. I think that's one of the things that I take away from it. I mean, the mentorship uh, of our founder. And people like, you know, Richard Dennis that I had on the podcast uh, a while ago, who, of course, was the father of the turtle project back in the 80s. I mean, when you hear people like that talk about the importance of discipline, you know, it it just sits really well with you. But it also means that if you don't have mentors or people to aspire to who can give you that belief and confidence in these rules, it's really hard, as you say, not to be falling uh, into some of these traps
2: you know, it, it makes the case, you know, if you think about how to at the risk of being dramatic here, you know, you think about mm-hmm. how you launch a, a nuclear weapon or something mm-hmm. like that. You have to have multiple parties sort of with their finger on the trigger, multiple points of consent to take a drastic step like that, because we know we don't want to vest that power uh, unilaterally in one in one single person. I think quant managers uh, would be wise to do something similar like one person's moment of panic or indiscretion shouldn't be able to override the whole system. Mm-hmm. we want to build uh, stop gaps and other preventative measures in there to to keep us from doing what is a very natural you know what is a very natural human tendency to to want to disobey those rules at the moment we need them most
1: Yeah, no I think that's a great point. Now, it sounds like a lot of the solutions we're really looking for are uh, you know, incredibly counterintuitive to us as, as humans. And I'm just curious, in, in all of the stuff you've looked at, is there anything that kind of springs to mind as being kind of the most counterintuitive finding when it comes to sort of finance and investing that you zoomed in on?
2: So, you know, the one uh, off the top of my head, the one that comes to mind is just that action is the enemy of, of success. You know, mm. Meyer Statman looked at 19 different countries, and he found that there was a monotonic, so a, a stepwise correlation between activity and, and investment performance. So those who did the worst were those who ironically kept the closest eye on the markets. So it's a mm. weird thing to say that, uh, you know, no offense to listeners of this podcast or my podcast, <laughs> but it's like by by virtue of caring this much about it, Right. By virtue of listening to podcasts like this or like mine or reading books like mine, you might actually weirdly be on a bad path. So there's, you know, there's this apocryphal story of, of Fidelity doing this survey of, of who did the best. And it was the people who had forgotten they had accounts or people who had died. And, you know, I don't even know if that's true. But, but the research is, is unequivocal that the more you do, the worse your results are. And again, this is this is that Wall Street bizarro world concept, because if you want to get more intelligent, you should read more books. If you want to get more fit, you should lift more weights. If you want to make more money, you should do nothing, you know, or next next to nothing. Uh, And it's a very weird thing to try and get your head around.
1: Yeah, no, that is that's a, that's a great example. Actually, I was thinking about from my own point of view, you know, what would I think of as as being really counterintuitive, and I I kind of landed on the thing that you know, as uh, when you start out in this in- industry, and and I guess even before, you're always told you should buy low and sell high. Then I end up in this trend following world for thirty years, and of course, what we do is we buy high and we sell low, and it's completely the opposite, but it really works. <laughs> Now, we kind of dived into a few sort of sporadic topics uh, right from the beginning because there are really so many avenues to explore with your work, which I find fascinating. But maybe it's best that we take a step back and we look at some of the the building blocks uh, of behavioral finance. And I think you've kind of nailed it down to, or boiled it down to, you know, four groups of social difficulties surrounding investment making decisions so maybe from from, a, from from the starting point we could kind of define them and, and talk a little bit about each of them and then after which we'll go on and talk about some of the solutions you've identified as well.
2: Yeah, so one of the things that I've tried to do in my last two books, uh, one of the frustrations that I had with behavioral finance was there were these larger and larger lists of biases. You know, I think it was approaching about 200 the last time I read it. And so, you know, it's not all that helpful to come to a trader, to come to an investor, and to say, look, Look, hey, you know, Mr. Investor, there's 200 ways that you can get this wrong. So good luck. And so what I what I did is, as I looked at these long lists of behavioral biases and cognitive traps and things like this, I said, look, not all of these are all that distinctive. If if you drill down, a lot of these load onto one of just a handful of factors. So I I began to look at the literature on investment error with no preconception about how many uh, sort of sort of errors would shake out but i really landed on four so we can you know i'll, I'll sort of list them here and then we can talk about them in greater depth sure uh, so the first was ego which is you know sort of overconfidence writ large uh, the second was emotion our tendency to be uh, to trade on our emotions rather than our logic uh, the third was attention, which was our tendency to confuse things that are visceral or lurid or sort of sexy with things that are likely. And then last was conservatism, which is our tendency to privilege the status quo and be be more comfortable with things that we're, we're more familiar with. So those... I think basically uh, those cover ninety nine percent of the waterfront. Any any sort of behavioral error you make, you know, just about loads onto one of those four things. And the cool thing about it, like you like you hinted at, is once we have a manageable universe of investor behavioral risk. We can start to design systems that are robust to protect against some of those risks. So that's why I think it's important to sort of codify and, and winnow down that universe of bad behavior.
1: I'd love to dive into to ego to to begin with let me read a quote from your latest book which i find uh, really fascinating and maybe you can talk to that a little bit more it goes like this if this time is different is the most Expensive phrase in investing. I would like to nominate I don't know as the most overlooked phrase in investing with I was wrong as a close second. As is so often the case, the usefulness of these beliefs in an investment context is is directly proportional to their behavioral difficulty. Acceptance of uncertainty and a belief in personal fallibility are remunerated precisely because they come so hard to uh, humankind. It is strange to consider that many of the most effective tactics in investing have I don't know at the core. Passive investing, and maybe I can personally add here trend following and managed futures, is the embodiment of I don't know investing. I think this is really critical to understand what this really means because interestingly enough one of the key phrases that has uh, really been in our industry for a very long time since the the 80s and i think it was a um, a gentleman called larry Hyde that kind of phrased phrased it back then is knowing what you don't know mm-hmm. and i think this is this is important but i'd love to hear your kind of you know diving a little bit more into to to this uh part of 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 your um findings
2: so you you mentioned earlier the the human desire for stories and so for much of human history that's how we connected that's how we transmitted information and, and connected with each other. Research out of Princeton shows that when two people are sitting across from each other so you and I are having a conversation if they take a brain scan of each of our brains they don't look much alike initially you know when we're having a conversation. Uh, Yours is much better than mine. So, but then when I start (laughs) to tell you, when I start to tell you a story, though, our brain activity syncs up. So, in a very, very real sense, we are hungry for stories. We are wired for stories, and we want stories in the market because it gives us certainty, right? Or, or at least a, a false sense of certainty. We want the world to make sense, you know, at a fundamental level. We don't wanna embrace the chaos of life and markets. And so stories do a lot to sort of soothe our psychic pain. But as you said, uh, a lot of the best approaches to investing, be it trend following, high conviction, sort of uh, quant value, passive investing, uh, uh, you know, uh, many, many we could name, have I don't know at the base. Mm-hmm. You know, we are following rules. We are following rules based on what's worked historically, um, but we don't know. Like, you know, I, I don't know who's going to, you know, uh, win the next election. And, you know, I give the example uh, when, when Donald Trump won the election in the U.S. I mean, I did not know that. I think ne- nearly nearly no one expected that. Uh, it was not as I expected. And when he when he won, I don't know if you remember, but that night the futures were just mm-hmm. decimated. And I said to myself, like, this is it. You know, you had you had Paul Krugman and other sort of esteemed economists coming out and saying, well, this is it. Like, this is the end of the American economy as we know it. Stock market's going to go, you know, go straight to hell. And my rules said no. You know, my rules at that time were saying stay put my brain uh you know my expectations my sort of discretionary sense of risk was all flashing warning signs but my rules said to stay invested and i'm so glad i listened to my rules because of course we've had a you know we've had a nice run since then notwithstanding recent turbulence and it's just that there's going to be a million examples of this It's much more pleasing to be the macro-discretionary guy that gets to go to the conference and weave this complicated narrative about what's going to happen in the Trump presidency. It's much less sexy to be Daniel Crosby and to go, you know, I don't know, uh, but historically, history tells me I need to stay put. I have no idea what's going to happen. And so it becomes a problem. It's, It's tough. But you have to convince yourself, even if you can't convince other people, you have to convince yourself. You know, Dan Egan, behavioral scientist at Betterment, wrote a wrote a great piece recently about how all investors need a faith, you know, and he sort of compared the different uh, ways of operating within markets to to a religion almost and said, look, it doesn't uh, you know, you you need to believe in something. You know, whether there's something you believe in is is managed futures or value investing or passive investing or whatever it is. You need an internal sense of belief because that's what's going to see you through the hard times. So, yeah, I, I, I never know what's going to happen, but I know but I am a market historian and I know what's happened previously and i feel that i can tilt probability in my favor by operating within those parameters but it sure is hard to not have a story when you want one
1: yeah i mean it really something i certainly still meet after all these years and and you know with lots of investors and you know you 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 come there you show them a you know a 20 30 40 year track record and and they still question so so why do you think this works i mean and and at the same time they will turn on uh, you know the, the uh, news media uh, listen to someone make a prediction where we all know we all know that you can't predict the future mm-hmm. so it's it's really mind-boggling sometimes how difficult for us to uh, you know get the message across really but there we are. So so that was a bit about ego. Do you want to touch about some of the other ones, conservatism, uh, attention, just to kind of get the whole spectrum of challenges that we have? And there's one more, of course.
2: Sure. So con- conservatism, uh, conservatism comes about for a couple of reasons. Primary among them is that our brains account for about two to three percent of our body weight. Uh, but they account for about 25% of our metabolic expenditure in a given day. So they're just thinking and autonomic processes are are accounting for about 25% of all the calories that you burn in a day, even though your brain is relatively small relative to the rest of your body so it's really really inefficient and so your body is always looking for ways to sort of shut your brain down and not use so much damn energy and so one of the ways that we do this is we just go with the tried and true. We go with what's always worked before. You know, we go to the grocery store and we don't reevaluate every decision about what kind of peanut butter to buy. Like we just, you know, we just buy what we bought as a kid because it's familiar. We don't have to think about it. And you see this in investing, too. You see this in things like, you know, people's unwillingness to reevaluate a cherished position. You see this in uh, home country bias. You know, uh, as a general rule of thumb, your, you know, a, a balanced portfolio should have an allocation to countries that is roughly consistent with their size in the world economy. But, you know, I lived in Canada for a time. Uh, Canada makes up about 4% of the world economy. The average Canadian has about a 60% allocation to Canadian stocks. And so, you know, and it, it's tricky too because you're effectively triple stacking risk, right? Like your your house is in Canada. So that's, you know, Canadian real estate exposure. Your job is in Canada. That's, you know, you're you're already exposed to the economy of Canada there. And now you're gonna load the boat with, you know, Canadian equities too, and I'm not picking on Canada, everybody does it. It's just a bigger it's a bigger or smaller problem relative to how large your 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 country is. And so, uh yeah, it's it's this problem that we just settle for what we we know. And you know, living here in Atlanta, we've got, you know, Coke and and UPS and Aflac and a couple of other Fortune 500 companies and I'll meet people who have 80% of their net worth in, in a single company. And you'll go, you know, what are you doing? You know, think about Enron, think about GE and they go, Oh, well, I know, I know what goes on there. And you go, Okay. You're, you know, you're, you're one of 300 accountants at, at Coca-Cola. Like you are not materially impacting the stock price. You do not know what's going on there. So we have to overcome this and be willing to take, to take smart risks and to think outside the box and to look at asset classes and and country exposures that we may not be familiar with. We need to take efforts to familiarize ourselves with those things.
0: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.